Now, <laughs> what book are we going through in the Bible right now? Daniel. You cheated. That doesn't count. <laughs> We're in Daniel chapter 9 this morning. Go ahead and open your Bible to Daniel 9. We're going to cover this whole chapter this morning. God has something to say to us today uh, in his word. Uh, I'm going to begin just by reading the first couple of verses. In fact, before I do, Lord, I just pray, God, that you come and, and speak to us through your word today, God. Uh, we know this is a living word. This isn't just some book. Come and do a work in our hearts today through your word, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now we're ready to read. Daniel 9 says this. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, the number of years that must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Now, that might not look like a whole lot, this might look just sort of like your on-ramp to get us onto the highway to get into the rest of the text. But there's actually something happening in this verse, in this couple verses. God is actually doing something here. This is a case right here of God trying to get Daniel's attention. You need to know something about God today if you don't know this already. God is always trying to get our attention. You say, why is he doing that? Because oftentimes we don't pay attention very well. Am I talking to somebody? I'm talking to this guy anyway. God is always trying to get our attention because he loves you, because he created you, and he cares for you, and he has a life for you. God created you to walk in a relationship with him and be close to him and involve him in your life. It's not just Sunday only. It's not just my spiritual sock drawer and then there's the rest of my life. God designed you to walk in a whole life relationship with him. Involve him in every area of your life. Walk closely with him all through your life. This is the life that Jesus talked about in John 10.10. 10. He said, I have come that people may have life. Somebody say life. And oftentimes, like I say, we're not really paying attention as we should. We know that God has this life for us, and we know that he wants us to center ourselves on him and to put him on the throne of our hearts. But if we're being really honest, a lot of the time, we're just kind of living like this, right? God is all around, and he's trying to nudge at us, but we're just doing our own thing, putting our head down, living the way we want, doing the things we want. We might kind of peek up and regard him once in a while, but God has more than that for us. God has better than that for us. So he nudges us like this all the time. You ever have the nudge before? Married men, you've had the nudge, right? <laughs> right in the ribs. God does that, but he's trying to get our attention, but it's a good thing. So if you're, for instance, here this morning and you're not a Christian, right? If you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've never surrendered your life to him and repented of your sins and called on his name, right? That is definitely something the Lord's trying to get your attention about. Hey, you're not right with God. God loves you, but he, he wants to save you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to make you a new creation, a new person, give you new life. God's nudging you on that if you're not a Christian, for sure. Now, as Christians, the nudges don't stop just when we get saved, right? God doesn't stop trying to get our attention once we're saved. Sometimes God has to give you one of these because as Christians, we're kind of caught up in a pattern of sin, that ever happened to you before, right? We, we just get into a rut of sin and we're, we're doing things maybe we shouldn't be doing and we're, we're in a pattern of doing that. Or maybe, maybe you're chronically the opposite. Maybe you're chronically not doing something that you should be doing, right? Sin isn't always just doing something wrong. Sometimes it's 
failing to do something that's right. Some of you, God is trying to activate you and get you to do something, and you're not, so he's nudging you like this. And the nudge is good. Sometimes, as a Christian, God might be nudging you to prompt you to like serve someone or, or get involved in a ministry. Hey, I've given you gifts. I have things for you to do, good works for you, people to minister to. Let's go. Sometimes God will do that to us. And sometimes God will nudge us, as we see here, sometimes God will nudge us to remind us of his character and his nature and his promises, right? Sometimes we get a little bit worried or anxious or freaked out or uncertain about the future or we we start to get a little bit overwhelmed by our circumstances in life and the panic sets in. Again, am I talking to anybody? And God sometimes says, hey, hey, fear not. Remember who I am. Remember what I've said. Remember what the truth is. Remember how this ends. We've talked a lot about that in this series of Daniel. This is what God is doing with Daniel here in Daniel chapter 9. You can see right here, God gets Daniel's attention pertaining to this word of prophecy given to Jeremiah the prophet. Namely, how many years must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. So, Again, in context, what we've seen in the book of Daniel so far, Daniel chapter 1, we talked about how the nation of Israel, of whom Daniel belonged to, they were doing this. They were, they were not really living the life they should be living. They were not really regarding the Lord as they should. They, they were doing their own thing, sinning, living unrighteously, not caring about God, not centering on Him. And so time after time, year after year, generation after generation, the Lord was trying to nudge his people. Hey, wake up. You're not living right. You need to repent. And the people didn't listen. They just kept going, kept their blinders on, kept their head in the sand. And finally, God had to take a step to really wake them up. He sent who, uh, the, the Babylonians, who were the world-leading superpower, kingdom, government, nation in the world at that time. He sent the Babylonians who came to the nation of Israel and exiled and sent away and deported a bunch of the citizens, the Babylonian exile. Remember we've talked about that in Daniel so far? Raise your hand if you remember that, okay? That happened early in Daniel's life when he was a teenager in about 605 BC, the first year of Darius, who was the king of the the Medo-Persian empire that came after the Babylonians. This right here was taking place in the 530s BC, about 538 BC. So this is almost 70 years later. And God is trying to get Daniel's attention to say, hey, remember what I said, the exile in Babylon, the exile away from your home, it's going to last for 70 years. At this point, it's almost over. Pay attention, Daniel. God's given him the nudge. Now, you say, how does God nudge us? How does God get our attention? Well, here it's very clear how God gets Daniel's attention. Look in verse two. It says, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, what does it say? Perceived where? A little louder, please. In the books. That's how God got Daniel's attention here. He read it in scriptures. That's how God often will try to get your attention through his word. I said this already this morning. This is not just some old book. This is not just some old words on a page that should belong in a museum somewhere. This is the living word of God. And God will often try to do a work in your life, trying to get your attention, trying to wake you up to something in your life. He'll often do it through his word. That would been a good place for an amen, just saying. There we go. All right. Coffee hasn't kicked in yet. That's okay. 
We'll get there. Now, God doesn't only reveal himself and, and get our attention and nudge us through his word. Sometimes it's when we're in prayer, right? Sometimes you're praying to the Lord and you just feel the nudge then. Sometimes you feel the nudge when someone else uh, speaks a word to you. Maybe it's a word of prophecy or a word of correction or a word of rebuke. Someone speaks that to you and, and wakes you up. You go, oh, sometimes that's God doing that, using that person. Sometimes God gets your attention through your circumstances. Uh-huh. Sometimes you're going along, you're living your life, you're minding your own business, and then wham, wham, bam, all these things start to happen in your life that, that you can't explain, or they're mysterious, or they're overwhelming. All of these huge things seem to happen all at once. You ever been there? Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes God will actually cause those things to happen, but even if it's not God causing it, he'll certainly use those things to get your attention right? So that's all God nudging us to get our attention. You say, well, what does it look like? What does it feel like when God does this? Well, it can be at either extreme or anywhere in the middle. Sometimes when God nudges you and gets your attention, sometimes it's kind of quiet. Sometimes it produces just like an inner stirring in you or an inner peace or an inner strength. Like, oh, right. Yes, God. I remember what you said now. Thank you. I, I have the strength to get through this day. Awesome. Sometimes though, it's on the other extreme. Sometimes when God gets your attention and gives you the nudge or the real hard nudge, sometimes it utterly flattens you. Sometimes it stops you dead in your tracks and everything else just grinds to a halt and you say, whoa, wait a minute. God, what's going on? This is what happens to Daniel here. Daniel, as we're gonna read in a second, Daniel, when he picks up on this, when he picks up on the nudge from the Lord, he is so floored by it. He is so flabbergasted by it. It shakes him right to the core. So let's read his response, verse three to 19. It says, then, so after he understood, you know, the Lord's nudge, then I turned my face to the Lord God seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants and prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. 
As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayers of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. How's that for encouraging, right? Again, it might not look like much, but you see what the nudge does to Daniel. Notice what happens here. God gets Daniel's attention. Daniel clocks it. He realizes he's aware of God. And the first thing, the first thing that he is aware of is, wow, my people and I, we do not measure up to God's standard. That's the first realization he gets. Very first thing. He doesn't have to think long and hard about it, right? As soon as this revelation of God comes upon him, this is what he picks up on. Immediately, he, he's aware. Immediately, he recognizes who God is, right? On the next slide, there's a bunch of scriptures. Immediately, verse four, he recognizes, you are the great and awesome God. You keep covenant, right? You keep your promises. You are faithful. You are powerful. That's what he's saying. He realizes that right away. Verse seven, to you, God, belongs righteousness. Verse nine, to you belong mercy and forgiveness. Verse 10, he talks about how God is the law giver. He makes the rules. Verse 14, God is righteous in all he does. Verse 15, he references about how God brought the nation of Israel out from the land of Egypt with a strong hand. God is faithful and he's strong. Verse 15 still, it says that God has made a name for himself. He is the famous one. Verse 16, he has righteous acts. God does what is right. Verse 16, verse 18, verse 19 talks about how uh, there's a city and a people called by God's name. See this, notice it. Immediately upon receiving the revelation of God, Daniel realizes who God is. Boom, he just gets a download and he understands right away. Immediately, at the same time, Daniel realizes who he is. Like this is just snap your fingers and it happens. Immediately, Daniel realizes he and his people don't measure up. Verse five, he says, we have sinned. What I like about that is he takes responsibility. See that Daniel is by some degree a leader amongst the people of Israel and he takes responsibility for his people. That's what a leader does. Do you think Daniel was responsible for every single sin that the Israelites committed? No. By all accounts, we've read in, in other chapters, he was pretty upright as a, a follower of the Lord. He certainly had things in his own life that were sinful, but he wasn't responsible for all of the sin. But look, he doesn't, he doesn't just pass the buck. Yeah, they've all sinned. We have sinned, he says. We have sinned. 
We have sinned, verse 5. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. We have rebelled. These are important things. Right? A lot of the times, we might not say this, but we think it. We think of obedience to the Lord, and we go, eh, whatever. He loves me. He has grace for me. Yes and yes, but, but where's our heart for obedience to the Lord? Where's our heart that realizes how bad and offensive sin is against God? And where's our heart to say, wow, I, I want that to, to be put to death in my life. I don't want to keep on sinning so that grace can abound. I want to, to get rid of that. Where's that heart in us? Daniel realizes it right there, how important obedience is. Verse six, he, talk, he talks about how we didn't listen to the warnings of the prophets that came in God's name. I, I said this already, for years, Decades, hundreds of years, God sent messengers called prophets to his people who came with a message that said, hey, you need to wake up. You're not living right before God and it's not gonna end well for you. And the people said, eh, no thank you. I don't receive that word. Daniel realizes, wow, we didn't listen to the people you sent. We didn't, we didn't listen to the truth. Verse seven, he says, we've committed treachery against you. Treachery is deception. It's betrayal. It's betrayal of trust. Daniel says, we are guilty of that before God. Yikes. Verse eight, we've sinned. Verse nine, we've rebelled. Verse 11, we've refused to obey your voice. This is serious. This is not for Daniel just to, uh, whatever. He's floored at this realization of how far short they fall of God's standard. And Daniel, immediately, when he gets this revelation of God, not only does he realize who God is and recognize who he is, he full well knows what he deserves and what his people deserve. You can see it right in here. Verse seven and eight, to us belong open shame, he says. Shame, we, we have been acting shamefully, Daniel says. Verse 11, he says, the curse has been poured out on us, rightfully so. That's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 28, by the way. God speaks to Moses and he says, uh, Moses, if you and my people of Israel will follow me and put me first and walk in my truth and in my commandments, God says, I'll bless you and it will go well for you. You will be the head and not the tail, it says, but God says, if you do not live for me, if you do not put me first, if you do not walk in my ways, if you do not have a heart that is inclined toward me, God says, there will be a curse poured out among you. It's not gonna go well for you. I won't bless you. You'll be the tail and not the head. And that's exactly what's happened in this text. Remember, they're in exile. They're not thriving and flourishing in their homeland. They're in judgment and discipline at this time. But Daniel realizes, hey, rightfully so, we deserve it. And worse yet, this text seems to imply that the people still haven't learned. They still don't know better, right? You would think maybe after 70 years of exile, people might've got the hint, but look what it says in verse 13. And yet we still have not entreated the favor of the Lord. We still have not turned from our iniquity. We still have not sought insight. We still have not obeyed. That makes it seem like even though they've been in judgment in Babylon, they're still got their head buried in the sand. And Daniel realizes, oh my word, the exile's almost over. We're about to go home and we still haven't even learned our lesson. What's gonna happen when we go home and we keep acting the way we've always been acting? Do you think God's just gonna forget about it? No, like what's gonna happen next? He is floored by this. And so here's what Daniel does. Critically important what Daniel does here. He appeals to God's character, right? You can see already, Daniel has no leg to stand on here. Daniel cannot say, well, don't worry. I think I'm righteous enough. I think we'll be okay. 
right? I think, I think that we've done enough more good than bad. I, I think we're okay. I think I've gone to church enough. I think I'm okay. No, no. Daniel has no high ground to stand on. He knows he's at the dead end. He's at the end of himself. And all he can do is throw himself at the feet of the Lord. This is what he does. He appeals to God's character. God, verse 14, you, God, are righteous. Verse 16, according to your righteousness, let your anger and your wrath turn away. Right? Not, hey, God, remember, I deserve it. You you don't want to pour your wrath out on me because I'm so great. Don't do it. No, he says, according to your righteousness, God. Verse 17, listen to the prayers of your servant. Listen to my pleas for mercy. Listen to me for your sake, God, for your own sake and reputation, God. Hear my prayer. Verse 18, Daniel says, remember the city, Jerusalem, that's called by your name. God, it's your holy city. Verse 19, for your sake, for the sake of your city and your people. And here's verse 18. This is a critical verse in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel says this, Not because of our righteousness, Lord. I make this appeal to you, not because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. He knows, right? God doesn't owe him anything. He doesn't deserve anything good. But God, he says, I know that you're good. I know that you're merciful. So I'm just laying it out before you. This is what Daniel does. He has nowhere to go, nowhere to hide, nowhere to run, no way to fix this. And here's what happens. God's going to show up. And when we get to that in a minute, we're going to see that God moves. God responds to this prayer that Daniel makes. But before we even read that, I want to just muse this to you. Why do you suppose God showed up when Daniel made this prayer? We'll talk about what he does in a minute. Why is it that God might potentially show up in response to a prayer like this? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Daniel, this prayer that he makes is earnest and it's humble. Right? Daniel is not getting up on his soapbox and puffing out his chest. You guys look great from up here, man, I'm telling you. That was funny, by the way. Daniel's not full of himself in this moment. God, look how amazing I am. You really ought to listen to me. No. Daniel also isn't faking it. Right? Sometimes, oh, sometimes we do this as, as believers even. How are things going? Great! How's things? Wonderful. My life is a hot mess, but wonderful. Right? How's your walk with the Lord? Oh, great. Me and the Lord, man, we're great. We're great. Sometimes we'll show up in church on Sunday morning. We haven't even given a thought to the Lord all week, but we'll roll into church. Oh, yes, praise the Lord. Look at me. I'm even raising my hands in church. Great. But what about the heart? You can't fake it with God. Daniel's not faking it here. He's utterly emptying himself. And this is not a formula, by the way, that will guarantee that God's going to have to show up and do something, right? If I just act sad enough and broken enough and appalled enough, God will have to show up for me. No, God does whatever he wants. You could write that down in your book today if you're taking notes. God does whatever he wants. That's actually scriptural. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases is what it says in the Psalms. So you can just remember that one. We can't force God to do anything, but I'm saying that this heart that Daniel exhibits, this is a heart that moves the heart of God. This is a heart that God loves to respond to because it says in Psalm 51, it says that a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. If we honestly, earnestly approach the Lord in that way, God will honor that. God moves to that. 
Let me say it another way. Prayer, talking to God, prayer is most effective when you've emptied yourself and not when you're full of yourself. Just like Daniel. Still with me so far? So here's how God shows up. God responds. Let's read verse 20 to 23. It says this, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, that's an angel, yes, we believe in angels, heavenly being, messenger from God, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, that's talking about what we happened in the last chapter there, in chapter 8, Gabriel came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Swiftly, like he's in a hurry. Swift flight, right? He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. For you are, what? Greatly loved. Man. Notice there. God intervenes right away. It says, while I was still speaking, right? Daniel didn't make this prayer and then have to wait for a while, wait for a week, wait for a month. While he was speaking, God showed up. Now, God doesn't always do that. Remember, he does whatever he wants. God doesn't always show up immediately, but here he does, and sometimes he does. But at the very least, God knows immediately. He is aware of the situation immediately. At the beginning of your plea for mercy, it says, a word went out. And this word comes out, it says, verse 22, to give Daniel insight and understanding. This is often what we need. This is certainly what Daniel needed here. Daniel has this conundrum of, oh my word, the exile's about to end. We're not right with God. What in the world is gonna happen? I don't know. The future's uncertain. And God gives this word to give him insight and understanding. This is what Daniel needed in this moment. Here's what you need to know about God. God will always show up and give you exactly what you need. God does not always show up and give you what you want or what you think you need, right? You know this, sometimes what you think you need isn't actually what you need, but God actually knows better than you do what you need and he always gives you what you need. Did you catch all that? (laughs) Because he's good, he's good and he knows best. And look what he says to Daniel, look what he speaks over him at the end. You are greatly loved. Daniel is freaked out, he's panicking about what's gonna happen and God says, Relax, I love you. I believe today God wants to speak that out to some of you guys. Well, to all of you. God loves you, first of all. Turn to your neighbor and tell them God loves you. Some of you in particular, though, need this maybe a little more this morning. I I believe the Lord wants to do that in your heart, to 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 just speak this to your heart and to your soul. You are greatly loved. So whatever you're worried about, whatever you're panicked about, whatever you're freaking out about, whatever you're uncertain about, whatever you're anxious about, God loves you and he wants to fill you to overflowing with his love. And perfect love casts out all fear, by the way. Just thought of that right now. It's in 1 John. If you're freaked out and worried and anxious, you you need a revelation of the love of God in your life. That's the cure. Just saying. We're gonna pray for that later on, by the way just telling you. You're greatly loved. He gives Daniel exactly what he needs. And what God is going to do at this point is he's going to give Daniel a prophecy. Somebody say prophecy. Prophecy. I said already that the back half of the book of Daniel contains a lot of prophecy. A lot. 
some of which is kind of mind-boggling and head-spinning. But that's the book of Daniel for you. And uh, in Daniel chapter 9, part of what Daniel needs, part of this word that God gives him is this prophecy that we're going to read. And it's about Jerusalem. It's about his people. It's about here's what's going to happen in the future. Now, here's what I'll say. This is one of the most widely disputed prophecies in the whole Bible, right? No big deal, right? No problem. Let's just be simple. This here is one of the most debated and disagreed upon prophecies in the whole book. People look at this and say, I think it means this. And other people say, actually, it certainly doesn't mean that. It means the exact opposite. And there's, there's ranges of opinion and persuasion all in the middle too. This, this prophecy that we're going to read, oh man. It's like if you were going through a big maze, like a corn maze or something. And you come to a fork in the road and it's like, well, if I go left... Eight different paths open up to me that way. If I go right, ten different paths open up to me this way. And if I take this, and then I take this, now another twelve have opened up to me. This is what this prophecy is like. No pressure, right? So what I'm going to do, I'm going to bring my trusty prop down this morning because I want to write a few things on it that are going to help us understand this a little better. So bear with me for but one moment, and then we're going to read this together. Oops, I knew I was going to hit that. Now... There. Let's read the rest of our text here. <laughs> okay. It says, Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Some of your translations just say a most holy one or a most holy. We'll talk about that. Excuse me. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and its end, to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and the offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. You probably all understood that, so let's not even talk about it. We'll just finish up. <laughs> right? What in the world? Okay, now. Now. Here, let's start with something that we can pull out of this pretty easily. I, I want to submit to you that this prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. In verse 24, it talks about what's going to happen during these 70 weeks. We'll talk about the 70 weeks, but here's what's going to happen during the 70 weeks. It says, number one, that the transgression is going to be finished. There's going to be an end made for sin. Someone or something is going to atone for iniquity. Someone or something is going to bring in everlasting righteousness. It's going to seal both vision and profit and anoint a most holy place. See, they're all underlined, right? All of those things I submit to you are things that Jesus did. Jesus finished the transgression. That means the sin, the, the, the punishment. Jesus finished that. On the cross, when he died, he died in our place for our sins to pay for it. So check 
Jesus did that. Put an end to sin, right? Jesus on the cross, his sacrifice. We literally read this. If you're on um, sidebarring, if you're on our Bible reading plan that we're doing on version, Hebrews 9 was the text this morning, and it literally talked about how Jesus made one sacrifice that is good for all time, to put an end to sin once and for all. So that's a big check for Jesus there. The next one, atone for iniquity. That means pay for sin. Did Jesus do that on the cross? Yes, the Bible says that he himself bore in his body on the tree the weight of our sins. So he paid for our iniquity. Check, bring in everlasting righteousness. Did Jesus do that? Well, uh, it says in God's word that he, Jesus, became sin for us so that we might become his righteousness. Check, Jesus did that. Seal both vision and prophet. Jesus, uh, the, the Bible says Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Seal them up, they're done, they're fulfilled. Check for Jesus there and to anoint a most holy place. Now, again, some of your translations just say a most holy one or a most holy. Many scholars believe this isn't talking about a a specific place, but it's a person. Jesus came as the anointed one, the chosen one, the set apart one. That's a check for Jesus there. So whatever this prophecy is talking about, it has to do with Jesus. You with me so far? Okay, well, now three of you are. The rest of you, I don't know. I'll pray for you. Now, here's where we get into a little more of the fuzzies right here. You say, what's the timeline here? What's the 70 weeks? What's the story? What's all the symbolism? What does all this mean? Before I give an explanation for that, here's what I will say. Again, there are many, many different interpretations and understandings of this. And there are many, many details within those interpretations that are disputed and debated. Just because I'm going to present to you in a minute what the most common interpretation is of this prophecy. But if you in your study have come to a different conclusion or have landed in a different place, that's okay. Here's how it works. We can still be friends and hang out and be part of a church family if we disagree on some of the secondary stuff. Here's the primary point of this. It's about Jesus. Somebody say it's about Jesus, Jesus. right? That we need to agree on, right? There are things in our faith that are essential, that are more important than other things. Jesus is Lord. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. He's coming back again to judge the living and the dead. And those of us who belong to him will get to go and be with him forever, eternal life. Those are the essentials. Can we agree on those together? Okay. There are other things like, oh, how often should we take communion? And what kind of music should we do in the church? And, and what, what's our interpretation about, you know, the end times or whatever? These are things that Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians can disagree on. And that's okay. We can still hang out. We won't separate you to one side of the church or the other. You know what I mean? It's okay. So this text right here, this is one of those. Let me put it this way. Let me put this another example. If I said to you, we're going to take a trip to Fredericton. And I said, what's the best way to get to Fredericton? Some of you would pipe up and you would say, oh, go across the bridge, Highway 7, straight shot right to Fredericton. It's the fastest way. It's the best way. But some of you might say, well, actually, I think the best way is to go up to like Grand Bay and then go across the river and go along the river up through Gagetown. It's more scenic. That's the best way. My dad always took detours and we drove as a kid. It drove us nuts. This is the best way to go. Yeah, but it's an hour longer. It's not the best way to go. Anyway, apparently, should have said that in therapy. But anyway, okay. 
you might say, well, I think the best way to go to Fredericton is actually to go up to Moncton. We'll go to Moncton because that, they have an IHOP there and we'll get some pancakes and then we'll go to Fredericton. That's the best way. You might say the best way is to go to, to St. Stephen because we can hop over to Calus and get cheap gas and then go to Fredericton. That's the best way. Here's my point. All those roads still lead to Fredericton. We can still get to the main point if we disagree on some of the points within. That was a good example, by the way. You're welcome for that. Now, now, okay, I'm going to take some notes here. This prophecy, it talks about 70 weeks. Again, lots of debate and discussion about what that actually means. Is that literal weeks? Is that years? The most common interpretation about these 70 weeks is that they represent a time period of 490 years. I'll explain the significance of that. And no judging my messy printing, by the way. That's the best I can do. So you're welcome. Now, the reason that we can make this connection, there are places in the Bible, for instance, a place like Leviticus chapter 25, that talks about weeks, uh, prophetic, like Sabbath weeks. You can go read that. I'm not going long on that today. But it talks about how a week, in that case, represents seven years. I'll write down our little conversion here. One week equals seven years. Again, when you're talking in terms of prophecy, there's usually a lot of symbolism, a lot of metaphor, a lot of analogies. That's what we have here, seven years. So it says here that there's going to be a time period. This is what the prophecy in Daniel 9 says. There's going to be a, prof a, a time period of seven weeks. How many weeks? So if we do seven weeks, each week is seven years. Seven times seven is what? 49. You didn't know you'd be doing math in church today, right? 49 years. And then it goes on to talk about how there's going to be a time period of 62 weeks. Let's see how smart you are in your mental math. What's 62 times seven? I'm going to tell you what it is. It's 434. You add 49 and 434, that equals 483 years. Now, it says, what we read in Daniel 9, it says that during this period of 483 years, there's going to be a going out of the word to rebuild Jerusalem. So again, in context, Daniel 9 happened in the 530s B.C. 530s B.C., Darius goes on to give the decree to the people of Israel. Hey, your exile's over. You can go home. You can read that in the Bible. That happened shortly after this prophecy was made. So the Israelites went home. They went back to their homeland. They went back to Jerusalem. But the city had been destroyed by the Babylonians. They laid waste to the wall. They tore down the temple. They, it was a wasteland, just a wreck. The, issue, the word to rebuild Jerusalem did not happen when the exile ended, it happened later. It happened in the 440s BC under the rule of the Persian king Artaxerxes. Because it's fun to say, say Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes. We're having fun. He gave the word. The exile was already over. Many people were home, but he gave the word. Hey, Jerusalem ought to be rebuilt. The temple ought to be rebuilt. You can go read that in places like Ezra and Nehemiah. So 440s BC, that starts the going out of the word to rebuild Jerusalem, sort of starts the prophetic clock, if you will. The clock starts rolling, and after, or during this 483 years, these 69 weeks, it says 
that there's going to be that going out of the word. Jerusalem is going to be built. So that's a prophecy right there. Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. Right now it's a wasteland. It'll be rebuilt. It's going to be completed with square and moat. It's going to be done. It's going to look great. But it's going to be during a troubled time, it says. Now, we know this is true as well. We know this prophecy came to be in that way. Again, you read books like Ezra and Nehemiah. The rebuilding of Jerusalem was no easy task. There was much opposition. There was threats of war and persecution. Go read that yourself. It's right in there. Remember last week we talked about more persecution as well that would have happened in this time period. Remember we talked last week about the guy Antiochus Epiphanes, right? You're probably just trying to spell his name in your head right now. That's okay. Antiochus Epiphanes, he was a Greek king that ruled and reigned in the 160s BC, and he launched a full-scale persecution against Jerusalem. We talked about all that last week. You can go back and listen to that. So that came to be true. Jerusalem was rebuilt. It was a troubled time. And then it says in verse 26, after 62 weeks, after this 62 and the seven are all done, 483 years total, there's a pause. After the 62 weeks, it says here's what's going to happen. An anointed one is going to be cut off. We already talked about who the anointed one is. That's Jesus. That's a prophecy about the death of Jesus. Now, oh, I wish I could nerd out. I wish we had the time to nerd out about the timeline here. We don't. You can do your own research. You're smart people. There's some debate as to well, are we talking about years that are 365-day lunar years like we have? Or are we talking about Hebrew years that only have 360 days in them? All kinds of stuff like this. What I'm here to tell you, though, the, the Coles Notes version, is the timeline here corresponds very closely from the going out of the Word to rebuild Jerusalem in the 400s B.C. to the death of Jesus in the 30s A.D. Predicted right here, some 500 years ahead of time. An anointed one is going to be cut off. And then it says, right after this period is done, it says the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city. So do you see that? There's going to be a going out of the word to rebuild Jerusalem, but eventually it's going to get destroyed again. The temple is going to get destroyed again. Guess what happened in the year 70 AD? Temple got destroyed by the Romans. The Romans came. They destroyed it. They burned it down. And even to this day, there's not been a temple, at least in the way that there was back then. Now, it says after this, then there's going to be a final week. A final week. How many, uh, how many years is a week? Good job. Paying attention. There's going to be one week. Seven years. should write that. Seven years. Now, we're unclear. What it doesn't tell us is how long the pause is between this and this. There's going to be 483 years, then there's going to be a pause, there's going to be some stuff happen, and then eventually this final week is going to happen. We call this the end times. Now, again, we're in the period between the times right now, between this and this, but here's what it says is going to happen during this final week. It says in verse 26, there is a prince who is to come. That's a reference to the Antichrist. We've talked about him a bunch of times the last few weeks. Now, we've said, if you've missed any of that, the Antichrist, yes, we believe that 
he's a real thing, a real person. He's going to be a real, literal, actual person who's going to be empowered and fueled by Satan and, and demonic powers. He's going to rise up in an earthly kingdom, an earthly government, but he's going to turn it into a war on God in the last days. That's what we've, that's what we've talked about and discussed. It says here that he's going to make a covenant with many. Now, a lot of scholars believe the many in view here is Israel and perhaps more people. And they say that uh, probably Israel's not going to realize who this person is, who this Antichrist is and what he's going to do, but they're going to make a covenant with him for one week, for seven years. But look what it says. It says that for half of this week, what's half of seven? More math. 3.5. For half of the week, 3.5 years, this Antichrist is going to end the sacrifice. He's going to stop the offering and he's going to make Jerusalem and the temple desolate, wasteland, not good. Now, that means he's going to break this alliance after three and a half years. And for three and a half years, he's going to persecute and it's going to be bad and it's going to be difficult. This lines up already with what we saw in Daniel chapter 7. We said the Antichrist is going to rule and reign for a time, times, and half a time. This lines up with what it says in Revelation 12 through 14, that the Antichrist is going to have dominion for 42 months. Guess how long 42 months is? Three and a half years. Just delivering the mail. You're welcome. Now, that is the most common interpretation of this prophecy. Let me just bring it back to what we do know. This thing is talking about and is pointing to Jesus. It's talking about his death on the cross and the work that was accomplished there in this period in here. We've talked before, and it even says in this thing here, there's a decreed end that's going to be poured out on the desolator. That's the Antichrist. We've talked in the last few weeks that Jesus is going to come back, and he is going to put down the Antichrist, and he's going to set up shop on a throne, and we're going to get to be with him forever. It's going to end well for us as believers. Amen? Good place to clap for Jesus. Yes. Yes. And we already read that the purpose of this prophecy is to give us insight and understanding. So the whole point of this, even if we may not agree on all the details, and I'm not saying I'm an expert, good grief. If someone tells you they're an expert on Daniel 9, watch to see their nose grow. Just saying. We don't know. It's fuzzy. But here's what we do know. Yes, the end is coming. Yes, the Antichrist is real. Yes, it's going to be difficult if we're here for that. However, Jesus wins. Jesus rules. Jesus reigns. And since he wins, we also win. That is the insight and understanding we need from Daniel chapter 9. Amen? Now, my head is spinning and I'm really sweaty. Let's wrap this up. Let's just, let's just capture all of this again. Remember what we talked about? It seems like a long time ago now. God is trying to get our attention. God's always trying to get our attention. I wonder, don't answer out loud, what might be God trying to get your attention about this morning? Where are you feeling the nudge from God? And where are you trying to ignore it and brush it off and hope that he goes away and forgets about you? He won't, by the way. It's not how he works. He's got a pretty good memory. He'll remember. Here's my advice and my encouragement to you and for us. Lean into the nudge. If God is prompting you to do something, to start something, to stop something, to, to regard him more closely, to walk with him more faithfully, listen, he is good. 
He loves you. You are greatly loved. You can trust in him. Lean into the nudge. You're way better off to lean in than you are to resist. It's uncomfortable to resist. You'll be outside of the will of God if you resist. Just lean in. Get real with him, just like Daniel did. Respond the same way Daniel did. Humble yourself before the Lord. Put your listening ears on before the Lord. Pour yourself out before the Lord. That's completely biblical and scriptural. Be open and honest and vulnerable with the Lord. Transparent. Be real with him. God wants a real relationship with you. We got to be real with him. And again, something that this does for me, it shows it's just another reminder. We can trust God. He knows what he's doing. He knows what's coming. He knows the whole measure of your life from beginning to end. He knows every meditation and inkling of your heart. So trust in him. He is near. He is good. He will forgive you. He will sustain you. He will strengthen you. He will give you exactly what you need. But we gotta be a people who are willing to lean into the nudge. Capiche? Capiche? 